This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. Hi, I'm Laurie Grassi and welcome to this bite-sized bio career panel discussion. We know that finding the perfect career can be a bit tricky, so we're here to help you figure out the best path for you, whether it's in academia or elsewhere. For today's discussion, we've got three panellists, Professor Stuart Maudsley, Dr Jane Luff and Dr Axel Thompson, each with a unique story to tell about their experiences in research and other scientific careers. Our panellists will start with a short introduction summarising their career journeys thus far. And I'll then put a selection of questions to them to speak to um, questions to them to spark some discussions. Finally, we'll end with a question and answer session so you can get your questions answered. Please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the top right panel of your screen. And I'll put them to Stuart, Jane and Axel at the end. You can enter questions at any time during the presentation, but these will be asked at the Q&A session at the end. Details of how to access the on-demand recording of this <laughs> webinar will be sent to you by email. We hope you find this event helpful in discovering the career that's just right for you. Let's dive in and have some fun. So firstly, over to you, Stuart, for your introduction. Hi, thanks. That was a great introduction. So <clears throat> uh, I'm Professor Stuart Maudsley. Uh, I'm the Odysseus Chair of Receptor Pharmacology here at the University of Antwerp in Belgium. Uh, I did my PhD in pharmacology in the UK, and then I moved to America to do my first postdoc. Then I moved back to Edinburgh with the MRC, uh, where I was uh, a lab PI. Then after that, I moved back to the States again uh, to work at the NIH and Johns Hopkins. Uh, and then we had some kiddies. And then we decided to move back to Europe. So my wife is Belgian, so we moved back here uh, to Belgium to sort of like uh, to mix work and also bringing up kids. So at the current time, I'm a primary researcher. I do a lot of teaching, uh, but also we do a lot of career development work and also a lot of corporate development work because we're now in the process of starting up uh, our first business based on our research. So I've been trying to mix as much things together as I can uh, to continually develop and change every five to 10 years. And I think that's an important part of looking at your career is uh, constantly building and changing and developing. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, next, we have Jane. Thanks, Laura. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Jane Love. I'm currently the program director for an innovative new charity called Our Future House. So we have a mission to accelerate the prevention and detection of, of disease uh, to try and intervene earlier in the disease pathway to reduce complex and expensive treatments um, associated with long-term chronic conditions. So we're trying to recruit five million members of the UK population so that we could be the largest prospective research cohort. So my role in this organization is as program director. So I basically have to make sure that we keep our program on track. So this involves working across very, um, very large multidisciplinary teams in both the technology sphere and the research sphere to try and make an achievable delivery plan to build digital platforms and to access um, uh, platforms that the public can engage with in order to join up to our charity. 
So this has to take account of the number of staff that we have to deliver the project, the sort of dependencies between different elements to make sure they're delivered in the right sequence so that we can um, actually put things together and also consider the budget and the sort of the development of a five-year funding plan and how we can scope new sources of funding to make sure that we can deliver all of the elements of our program. So <clears throat> probably uh, if you're all lab-based scientists, it's probably a bit different from where, where you thought you might end up. So I think it might be worth just giving a little bit of background as to um, how I got here. Um, obviously, I've always had a love of science, so it was always a no-brainer that I was going to take a, a sort of an undergraduate uh, degree in biological sciences. Um, but I became really interested in cellular specialization and how cells actually change their morphology and their composition to take under specialized roles in complex organisms. And I got very interested in the sperm cell, not just for obvious reasons, but because it's a very, very interesting cell. Um, if you think about what it does, it creates new life and it also undergoes massive morphological change. But I also became very interested in the hypothesis that environmental chemicals could have an impact on um, male sperm counts and fertility. And I was very lucky that I did my undergraduate degree in Edinburgh, where there happened to be a medical research council unit that was looking into human reproduction. And one of the key um, people working in this area was a guy called Richard Sharp. And I was fortunate enough to do my, my PhD with him. And I also did a postdoc in his lab working on a large EU consortia project, which was one of the precursors to Horizon 2020. So I began to get more and more interested and involved in the project management of research grants and the coordination of the research effort across you know, very large scale projects with sort of 20 plus partners. And I made a decision to leave bench science in Edinburgh and I moved down to London to take on the coordination of the next EU um, consortia grant that was um, going on in our area. And although I loved this role, the cost of living in London was such that I couldn't afford uh, to stay there on the salary that I had. So I think there are other things to consider. Um, and so I had to look for other opportunities to increase my salary and also gain more experience in the, in the field of research project management. And I took on a number of roles in different organizations. So for example, I've worked for the Royal College of Physicians managing the development of evidence-based noise guidelines. Um, and I've also worked for Medical Research Council in a number of um, increasingly senior roles as program manager, delivering various portfolios of research, driving initiatives to develop new exciting research areas such as um, hubs for aging research and things like that. So you get involved in a lot of different areas. I've also been involved in um, reviewing very large institutes and so Nobel Prize winning institutes such as Laboratory of Molecular Biology and um, being responsible for attributing the next five year round of funding. And I've also had the privilege of doing things like being part of the um, MRC lead on the establishment of the Francis Crick Institute in London. So I've been involved in a huge variety of different kinds of science projects which are related to research but are not research and also working across government to support the development of science funding policy um, and horizon scanning to look at where we should put the public money that's gonna be spent on research in the next in the next sort of um, spending reviews. Um, the previous role I had to this one was actually working for the National Institute of Health and Care Research, NIHR in the UK. I managed a 250 million pound budget, um, again, looking at how we were gonna review key clinical research infrastructure um, such as biomedical research centres. So all of these roles have kind of added to my experience in delivering research and understanding how the wheels of UK government funding works. And so it's this experience and this understanding 
that is of value to our future health. And these are the things that I'm bringing to that project that show how I can channel and support the success of the charity and um, so that I can take that forward in, in a positive way. Um, so thanks, Laura. That's, that's me in a nutshell. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Jane. And finally, over to you, Axel. Grand, thanks very much. So my name is Axel Thompson. I'm currently working in tech transfer effectively. So I work for Edinburgh Innovations um, up in Scotland. Um, this role involves a range of different skills through from academic science to business and commercialization, as well as a good understanding of um, intellectual property and law and even finance. So I would say that my current role is, is quite demanding in that there's a range of different skills that are required. Um, how did I get here? Well, through a quite varied career, which involved um, both academia as well as business and um, startups particularly. So I started my degree um, in biology at King's College in London um, and discovered an interest in genes and gene expression. This led me to do a PhD um, in molecular biology when molecular biology was still a, a very much a hand done thing a long time ago and there were less restriction enzymes and you have fingers on your hands. Um, it, yes, it was that long of time ago. Um, through the course of my PhD, I um, really enjoyed the detailed molecular analysis of gene expression and how steroid hormone receptors bind to DNA and turn genes on and off. And we defined those um, DNA binding elements as well as some of the proteins involved in transcriptional regulation. It was very, very heavily focused. Um, during that time, I made the acquaintance of a professor in California um, who was a cell biologist who had no idea about molecular biology. And so I joined his lab as the token molecular biologist. Um, this was exciting for me because I got to learn a whole load of anatomy and developmental biology, um, as well as the importance of stromal epithelial interactions. That is how fibroblasts and stromal cells control epithelial growth and differentiation. This is particularly apparent um, during development, um, but it turns out it's also true in cancer. So what was good for me was that I learned a lot about um, developmental and cancer biology um, and what I could contribute with skills that um, were molecular in the back in the days when molecular biology was still quite um, new and exciting. So that went really well for me, as well as life in um, California and particularly San Francisco. Um, I then took a, a tenure track job at the MRC unit, um, Human Reproductive Sciences unit in Edinburgh. Um, and that again, so there what I did was began more of a gene profiling um, approach to try and identify things made in stromal cells that regulate epithelial growth and differentiation. Um, that went well. I got tenure, they got in grants, things were going quite nicely. Um, then fate intervened and there was the financial crash. The unit also had a big review and unfortunately the place was closed. So quite a few of us were looking for jobs, which was a bit of a new experience. Um, and at that point, I thought, well, do I stick with academia or do I try something different? So at this point, um, the opportunity came to work for a startup company in Edinburgh, which was a, um, a, a genomics and diagnostics um, startup. Um, and there I found myself doing largely what I'd done in academia, which is writing grants um, and pitching to investors um, instead of um, giving seminars. So that, again, was going really well, but small companies have ups and downs in their funding, and they decided to move to Spain for um, some funding that was available over there. I decided that I didn't want to go to Spain at that point, um, and instead I wound up taking an academic position um, in McGill University in Canada. So this was um, a professorship, and I continued my academic work, which now was involving gene um, gene profiling methods, which had advanced quite a lot. So when I started, gene profiling was quite primitive. Um, but lately, we've been up to things like single cell transcriptomics. Um, and what I did at McGill was really focus more on patient-based um, work. So we took stromal biomarkers to try and predict how patients would um, 
turnout in, in their disease, particularly in prostate cancer. And why was this different from most people? Well, most people study tumor markers to try and work out what's going to happen to patients. And we were adding stromal markers into this mix. It also involved a lot of um, bioinformatics and things like machine learning, um, which was really um, a good education for me in an area which I wasn't that familiar with. Again, things were going well, um, but my family were at a point at which we had to make a decision as if we wanted to stay in Canada permanently. Um, and we came to the conclusion as a family, we wanted to go back to the UK. So I found myself back in Scotland and in fact, back in Edinburgh and um, working in technology transfer. And um, I would say that overall, I would, it's probably best if you're looking at your career to think of it as a play in several acts in that each of them can be their own thing. Um, I think the, the notion of a, a single focus career is probably less likely now than it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Um, people will have portfolio careers, I suspect. Um, for myself, I would say that my experience um, in academia as well as business has been really handy um, and it's been something I've enjoyed. So I think I'll leave it there and be happy to um, pick up further as the um, conversation goes on. That's great. So we've got uh, three excellent panellists, all from very different career paths and uh, where they are now. Uh, so thank you very much for those introductions. Uh, let's go over to the, the main question section now. Um, so the first question is, what do you like most about your chosen current career? Um, and what's the biggest downside? And let's start with you, Jane. So I think the most thing I like the most is the variety. So as you can tell from the description that I gave you, I, I've, I've had a a lot of positive um, engagements in a lot of different spheres doing a lot of different things with with very eminent um, people and you get the privilege of working with with them and supporting them and helping them sort of ride the pitfalls of of the funding environment you know as Axel was talking about it's not always pleasant you know I have had to guide units through closure I have had to support PhD students move university but then as I said you know I've also had the privilege of setting up you know world leading research institute so I think it's been a lot around the variety um I think the biggest downside though is that you you lose you lose the thing that you loved in science which was the the kind of the learning old and new knowledge in your area uh, the people that you've met you know I've always missed you know the the kind of uh, we had a very close-knit community up in, in our unit and in, in our sort of sphere you know you met the same people at conferences they became friends um, and you kind of lost the network that you that you really really enjoyed, and I think I still I still hanker for some of those days even now. Yeah, I definitely think the lab provides a definite uh, environment to create those close connections. Actually, so um, yeah, how about you, Axel? Uh, same question. What's the, the what's the the best thing you like about it, and the the biggest downside? <laughs> so for me, diversity. So I cover um, some of engineering as well as um, life sciences. Um, and my day can go from everything from enzymes to cellulose and um, trying to use biotechnology to make new precursors, feedstocks instead of oil, um, all the way through healthcare products, particularly in the cancer space, to straight out engineering at the photonics level and developing um, chips that do single photon imaging and can detect things which other things just can't be done. So that's great. You have to be um, mentally agile to try and um, keep up with all of that stuff. So I really enjoy the... Um, the excitement associated with that, as well as the intellectual curiosity um, and stamina required to um, basically keep up with that. I find that really fun um, because it is quite demanding. Um, I've also really enjoyed um, living a life around the world. So um, San Francisco, Edinburgh, um, Canada, Montreal, 
it's been really enjoyable. That's one of the great things about a scientific career is that you can go work in different places. Um, for me, the business stuff is also good. So the, both of the startups I've been involved in um, have been really exciting um, and you know, promise to do something new and different. Um, so it's marrying the business with the academic stuff that is with where, where I'm at in a tech transfer office. Um, and I think that is exciting. Um, downsides, I must admit, I have um, struggled with that. I would say, if anything, it's perhaps the loss of an individual project. So as a scientist, you tend to be quite monofocused. This is, you know, this is my project. This is what I really believe in. And it's really important. And you stick with that and you know it inside out. Um, not having control over that destiny is something. However, I have always been a keen um, critiquer and hopefully um, positive um, contributor to other people's work by saying, well, you know, I think this is a major flaw you've got there. What about fixing it like this or like that? So there's a lot of that that you get to do in my job. Um, and I do enjoy that part of it. Thank you very much. And you, Stuart, same question. Okay, well, uh, I think the thing I enjoy the most still is the discovery process. So I'm still doing a lot of primary research. And so when we find something new, I always tell the students, it's like, dude, you're the first person to see this on the planet. Out of 8 billion people, you're the only one to know this one fact. So you're a real pioneer and you're doing something totally different. So that hasn't stopped being exciting. And the discovery process is always interesting and fascinating. And even though it's very difficult and the success rate is very low and it's very tedious at times and can seem dull, the, the achievement is always fresh and uh, interesting. Now, the downside, uh, the, I mean, obviously, you know, academics will always say pay and stuff because we don't get paid a great deal. And so don't go into academic science wanting to get paid a lot because you just won't. It's as simple as that. But the, I would say one of the aspects about sort of academic science and research is a big problem that a lot of people know about is the world of publishing. And this is still a big issue is that we've been trying to modify. So basically your academic success is, is sort of controlled incredibly by the credentialism of the world. So if you publish in science and nature, then boom, big difference and stuff. And everything else is like an also around. And this is largely an engineered process, because even if there's wonderful papers, only one of 100 might get into science or nature. And yet that then is considered to be better than all the others. So despite the fact that we can now publish things online very quickly, like you know, MedArchive or Archive or BioArchive, or you can you know, self-publish, is we're still held back by this group thought of this is the only imprimatur of success. Um, and sort of the other thing which I don't like can essentially is sure, my individual discovery, my individual process and sort of, you know, linking two axles is that it's our project is that there's a, a little bit of a prima donna-ish aspect to a lot of research sciences. And I don't I'm actually not that interested in that. I'm not that interested in being a big ego and being like, you know, the big, you know, big man on campus and stuff, that there's not as much teamwork. Industry and other areas, there's a lot more teamwork. But in academia, it's very much how wonderful you are, how great you are on your own, and that's it. And I think that's quite a negative aspect to work and a negative aspect to science is that, and, and largely, this is engineered and propagated by this publication process. Because in publications, there's, there's, there's two important areas. First author, last author. Everyone else, yeah, whatever. 
and that kills i mean at our university and many others people often don't collaborate because they say well all i'll get is a middle author out of it and pff, what's the point it's like dude but that's killing science science is team science and it always has been so that is a procedural aspect of what we do and if you do go into science and you do stay in the academic area it becomes an enormous issue because it does hold back research it does hold back teamwork and it does hold back development so i spend a lot of my time ranting about this as you can tell but it's uh you know we're hoping it's going to change and there are mechanisms to change it and virtually everyone i talk to in most decent progressive institutions do champion the concept of team science and I think it's a bit of a, it, 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 it often can be difficult for people to transition from academia to outside areas because they're used to the world of prima donna and then they have to go and work in a team and be a team player all of a sudden. And it shouldn't be that different. It, it would be better if workplaces could uh, share the best aspects of each of their environments. Uh, so yeah, there's still too much ivory in the towers, unfortunately. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Yeah, no, I think that's probably uh, a problem with yeah, academia in general, not just your particular uh, position. Um, but there definitely seems to be a lot of voices that I would say agree with you uh, <laughs> at the moment. Um, on to the next question. Um, what skills and qualifications are needed, like actually required for your career, and how can these uh, be obtained? Um, let's start with you, Axel. So I would say scientific rigour is really important, um, anything to do with science. If you've got a good rigour, that is really good. The ability to critique effectively. Um, I'm hoping that you're all learning that through the course of your PhDs and postdocs and you're being involved in peer review. Um, the ability to identify and evaluate opportunities, um, especially where I'm in the tech transfer office, you get all kinds of stuff coming in the door and you've got to be ready for all of it and able to do your best with all of it. Um, so you've got to have a breadth. And the, the tragedy is, as the catch 22 is, is if you've got lots of experience, that really helps. How do you get experience, though? And um, that's one of the sort of the barriers a bit in that I think often tech transfer offices tend to be populated by the more advanced in age for various reasons partly because to get hired they want to know that you can do a lot which is like catch 22 if you're young although i would note um for the attendees we um edinburgh innovations is currently hiring in a couple of roles so you can try um and i will say that a lot of the people are open-minded in this area um so i would say ability to really evaluate opportunities but also think about them from different perspectives so in my area We've got academics on one side and business on the other side. You have to put, you know, view it from the academic side. You'll all be familiar with that. Then you have to learn what it is to wear a business hat and view it from a, a perspective which has a lot of different values, which might not coincide with the academic ones. All right. Thanks very much, Axel. And uh, the audience members will be sending a link out to those opportunities as well. So you can have a look at those yeah. after the webinar. Um, OK, how about you, Stuart? Well, uh, I think one of the most uh, important skills, well, okay, so I would say I would put my money on like two being very important. So one we talked about just before is resourcefulness. So this is, uh, it, it's seen as a trait rather than a skill, but it's actually a skill. Everything can be learned and developed and honed. So your ability to, you know, resourcefulness covers a lot. It covers networking, it covers interpersonal relationships, it covers uh, academic work and intellectual work at, uh, at the same time 
but it's the essentially it's the ability to not excessively focus on just one thing or one source or one aspect and it's the capacity to juggle more than one thing at the same time while focusing them together to produce the same output and uh, too many and especially in academic science we have a, a phrase here in belgium called you know being a subject idiot that you're basically you know your subject only and that's it and everything else you're an idiot and that's just not a good way forward because you can survive but are you growing you're not and that's that's a real issue so being able to source pieces of information source contacts uh, to understand where to go to find information is often overlooked. And that actually probably is one of the major skills that a lot of people should always think about. Now, on the opposite side of the spectrum, I think the other important skill is resilience. And, and uh, as Axel brought up and also with Jane, uh, and also with myself, is that your career will not be a single linear path. And you actually don't want it to be. If you if you did, then it would be rather dull. And when you when you reach sixty five, you might think, "Oh, dude, could I have done something else?" So the the likelihood is is that you will come across serious issues, and there will be times when there's a force majeure that you have to do something that you don't want to do. And the best thing you can do is realize that uh, the only way out of it is to ensure that your own progress and your own well-being is maintained despite the fact that you are in a world where you're often at the mercy of things out of your control and you always have to you know have your eyes on the final prize and that is you developing as a person and developing as a career so there are times when there's positives and times there are negatives and dealing with those in a positive progressive manner is the most important thing to think about and uh, too many scientists, too many researchers fall by the wayside because they have a goal that they uh, give themselves and they don't achieve it, and it crushes them. And I never have direct concrete goals because I'm not, you know, I can't predict the future and I can't predict biology. But if your only goal is to continue and to advance and to grow, then you're not going to fail. So if you're resilient to the fact that you are unable to truly control your environment or, or your trajectory, that takes a hell of a weight off your shoulders and off your mind with respect to you, oh, I didn't achieve that goal. So in a way, always be, you know, it's often a thing, you know, we deal with this a lot with a lot of students and stuff who have, you know, mental health issues is don't put yourself under too much pressure. It's the same for students. It's the same for everyone in their careers. Remember that at the end of the day, you're a human and you should really try and enjoy your life. It's, yeah, don't I think that's, don't that's, beat yourself up too much and realize that there's going to be strife. But be resilient and understand that you know it's about the end. It's not about sort of ups and downs along the way. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And a lot of things that people struggle with and I think in some ways the way academia is set up definitely people expect this linear path and aren't necessarily prepared for for the ups and downs um before we head over to Jane um you mentioned about um being resourceful if mm -hmm. you were um uh, 
talking to a PhD student or maybe an early postdoc and they were like okay you, you you say to be resourceful but how can I how can I practice that skill how can I hone that skill do you have any like practical tips for them for for how to to develop yes yes actually it's one of the courses I do uh, I, I I actually specifically so it's I do a lot of bioinformatics work and so basically I set I don't have a specific uh, course objective for the students but I say okay well I'm going to let you choose randomly a protein out of the proteome and I'm going to give you a concept and I typically choose aging or you know some form of disease and I say just show me the link show me how these two things are connected that you wouldn't think would be actually linked at all I'll show you all the range of tools that you can use and, and the sites and the algorithms and the applications you can use. You've got to decide what is the most beautiful route between them. And you come up with the story. So I show, I, I sort of like, you know, showcase the whole panoply of things that you can do. But then I ask the student, then you have to choose your story. So it's basically, you know, you have to be exposed to as much as you can, but then you have to synthesize from there. And so, and you can see it grow. And we, and we actually, what we do is halfway through the course, what I do is I give them the curveball experience. And so I change everything and I say, okay, now you've got a different protein. So you've got to change it all over again. You know, it's like being on top chef or something where they change the ingredients halfway through. So we do that and I show, oh, because you've learned resourcefulness, it doesn't matter if the project has changed all of a sudden, you can now apply it and develop it onto other things, which is actually much more of a real world situation where you're just, Given some data and then say, right, go. I mean, that's what you would find in an industry situation as opposed to an academic situation where you just keep on doing the same thing. So getting used to this change and getting used to rapid change is tremendously important, but you can do it quite easily. Uh, and so that's one of the things I, I really try and teach because I don't try and teach, okay, just cram all these things into your head, set your finals, and then you'll go... Pfft drains out of your head again and you're no smarter it's like that's no there's no point to that that isn't a good preparation for the world of work so so yeah that that's that's one of the examples that we do and uh it's 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 revolutionized once i made that change in my head it's like oh well there's no point teaching things anymore i can teach resourcefulness mm -hmm. and you can actually see people develop it it's not like a gift it is a skill that you can hone and a skill you can practice and it gets addictive after a while you know it's like how how much more quickly can i do this how better can i do this how much more retrieval can i get uh it's sort of it's quite nice to see people grab it and then develop and grow with that concept and i think as well by the sounds of it you're also helping them learn the second thing that you said which is resilience because by experiencing that change and stuff also they get the resilience that's brilliant thank you very much um so jane <laughs> uh back to the uh, original question of the um skills um skills and qualifications needed for your career so yeah i think maybe worth just reflecting that you're you're you know you're a highly intelligent bunch you're the top one percent of people that doesn't mean you're the only top one percent of people you have to learn to work with the top one percent in technology the top one percent in bioinformatics the top number one percent in ethics in public engagement in patient and public involvement you are not the top one percent you are a top one percent and it's really, really important to remember that because when you leave a laboratory environment, you're not in your ivory tower anymore and the ivory is very tarnished and you have to uh, prove yourself all over again using your transferable skills, using your resilience, the experience that you've gained and um, where things haven't gone well and, and, and you know, 
drawing on the experiences that you've had. So in terms of, you know, project management, some of the key skills have got nothing to do with science, but you need to have the understanding to be in the sphere. So things like communication, being able to talk both up and down to very broad audiences, being able to sell something so that everybody understands your direction of travel, the purpose of it, the importance of it. Why should you give me 10 million pounds and not Stuart? So what am I pitching? What's my USP? So you have to be able to communicate and persuade. You have to be able to have stakeholder engagement, build networks uh, uh, you know, across a wide variety of people who can help you with your aim. And they're not all scientists. They're everybody else that you need to build that picture as well around you. And I think one of the things to say is, is take opportunities you don't expect. You know, you, you're a scientist, therefore you live in a lab or, or you live on a, on a PC doing data analysis or whatever it is you do. No, you don't. Find out what your administrator does. Find out how they make your unit actually work. Because if you have to write a grant or you become the head of your department, you're going to have to understand all that stuff too. So sitting there saying, oh, it doesn't apply to me is really a false economy. And those are the experiences that will differentiate you from the person who hasn't done it. So when somebody asks you a question in an interview about whether you've ever had any experience of financial management or budgeting or any of the things which don't necessarily crop up in the day-to-day lab, you can say, oh, yes, I I went out and I supported this, that, and the next thing. And you've got those experiential um, illustrations to provide that a lot of other people won't have. Um, In terms of whether there's any qualifications needed to be a project manager, no, not really. However, it is an area which is becoming more and more professionalized and lots of more people do have, you know, Prince 2 qualifications, Agile qualifications. I've recently understood what a Scrum Master does and a bunch of stuff I had never heard of even at my age. And so I think we, you know, you do need to be open to the fact that I said at the start, you are 1% elite in science. There's a whole bunch of other elite people who don't do science who will get the job above you because they have a different experience and different skills. So you have to be open to learning, be flexible, and make sure you stay inquisitive, not just to science, but to how science works and how it's driven. And that's not just about reading papers. All right. Thank you very much. That was that was really insightful. Uh, so the next question is still about skills, um, not in those ones that are necessary. Uh, required or necessary for your job but that maybe kind of give you a, a leg up and, a, and and can kind of help you you beat other people if you are competing against others for the job. Um, let's start with you Axel. Okay I've got um, one skill and one trait I think. Um, so my skill would be lateral thinking. Um, it's absolutely critical in science you know sometimes you want to try and brute force something and yet if you're occasionally able to laterally think your way around it that really is good when you can demonstrate that that's a really valuable um, resource in both academia and business people that are able to think laterally um, and get a good idea of the big picture and where they fit into it so they understand the niches and how they're going to you know which niche they either want to be in or are going to be in Um, so for me lateral thinking I think is not anything that's you know formally measured but if you can demonstrate it I think you'll always have a, a, a rosy employment career in front of you. Um, the, and the other thing I would say is really uh, a good predictor of success is humility. Um, being wrong is what we do in science an awful lot, um, but it's very can be very career limiting. Um, 
we value innovation and everybody talks about innovation and it's all fabulous, except that it also tends to involve a lot of failure, which for young career researchers is incredibly difficult because, you know, old people like me can have failed several times and learn a lot from it and perhaps come out slightly better at the end of the process. Um, however while you're doing that and as you do the more of that that you do the more humility you acquire because you just realize how wrong you can be and that you've been wrong in ways that you couldn't imagine before um i also know that the smartest people i have ever dealt with tend to also be the most humble um in that they acknowledge that they're absolutely brilliant at what they do but that isn't enough um if you approach things with a lot of humility and the full understanding that there's a good chance that you're going to be wrong but you're going to deal with it and find a way of fixing it. That is, that in my view, again, is a predictor of people who will go far in whatever career they choose. That's a really lovely answer, Axel. Thank you very much. Uh, it's interesting. We have um, with our podcast, the Microscopists. Um, we talk with a lot of uh, prominent microscopists on there about their career paths. And one of the things that I've noticed from from listening to those uh, episodes is you do find that these people who you think of, oh, they've just been successes throughout their lives. They've had major setbacks and and things that, you know, could have ended their careers. But actually, they managed to turn it around and then suddenly they're Nobel Prize winners. <laughs> So I think that's really important. Um, how about we pass that on to uh, Jane next? Yeah, I think I'm going to use a very overused word, which is called strategy. And, and that has a myriad of meanings. Um, but from my perspective, it kind of builds on what Axel was saying. And it is that ability to understand the direction of travel when all around you can't see it. It's the ability to see where you're going and to try to make sure that you're maintaining the right direction. Or you can see that there's a path which is you know the, the path you were on is no longer there it's blocked something has happened something has changed whether it's the science whether it's the funding and you need to change direction and you have to be able to convince other people who are set on that path that there's a bigger picture and there's a reason that you need to take another approach to something and I think being that person it isn't always easy because you're going against the kind of the recommended norms of the people around you who are already set in a particular tra trajectory or direction. And sometimes you have to keep going, even though you might not be listened to the first time, you have to then go and get more evidence and, and show or illustrate or provide a rationale for what you think and why you think it. Um, especially, you know, not some people are very delivery focused. And, and they've just got a route to an end and sometimes they don't necessarily look at the other paths and possibilities. So I think there is something about not being dogged, but being clear when you when you feel you're right and you've got the evidence behind you not to give up and, and, and to do that. Um, and just to talk about successes in your career, you know, I've been made redundant. You know, I've had, you know, things happen in my career where, you know, you have to come back from it. I've taken that, you know, jobs that I wouldn't not maybe wouldn't not have thought I would have taken in order to get back up I've done a degree at night school you know I've got a, a master's degree an MBA I've got all sorts of things and these are all just life they're not good they're not bad they're not wrong they're not right they're just the path that that you ended up going down and you shouldn't be worried about these things these things happen you know yeah some of you will be very fortunate and you'll you'll go in a very trajectory that you've set yourself and that will work a lot of you won't, and, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. You just have to be resilient. You just have to pick yourself up and, and keep going and put yourself back where you want to be. That's great. Thank you very much, Jane. 
and uh, Stuart, over to you just as a, a reminder, skills not necessarily required, but, but dramatically help increase the chances of success. Uh, well, uh, it's really hard to follow up on two such good answers from Axel and Jane, but, uh, but in my sort of sphere and my sort of experience, uh, if I was to talk to a younger scientist today, I would say the most important thing is creativity. And it seems obvious. It's like, yeah, sure, we have to do that. But it's it's actually the way to beat competition. So you know, good old classic uh, quote here from Linus Pauling: the the best way to have a good idea is to have lots of ideas. And it's like you really have to do that. It, it's it, and your ideas should also be idiosyncratic. And it's the biggest problem in science and research is that people following too many others and realize and not realizing that everything that, that was been done before is not necessarily true it's just it's inaccurate and to a large extent some of it is misleading so you have to be sort of like independent in a way and be totally creative in your thinking because it will get you out of certain circumstances it will change a rut that you could be in scientifically, but also it'll get you ahead of your competition. Because this is, you know, one aspect about academia is it's intensely competitive and students can get intensely worried and bogged down by looking at PubMed every day and seeing another paper that comes out, by another lab that's competing, another one. Don't bother. Don't bother. Stop doing it. Think of your own things. You, really, it, you cannot compete with the whole world, but you should make the world compete with you by being uh, completely creative and, it, you know, I'm not going to say think outside the box, but you know what I mean. You have to be disruptive, to use another classic cliche, <laughs> uh, but it's like, but it is so true. So, you know, what we're doing now in my lab, you know, we're doing, you know, this is a, a Bruce Lee quote, we're doing, you know, pharmacology without pharmacology. You know, we are totally going against everything I was ever taught. And I love that because that's what every person should be doing because if you want to stand out from the crowd in any situation applying for a job and instrument being different is actually a, a huge leg up as long as it's productive and not crazy so for an example so often we have uh, these pitches that you do for other grants or or your masters or your phd or whatever and they're normally five minutes uh and but i tell the students dude if you can do it in one minute and you can knock the you know the the ball out of the park just do one minute and just blow them away. And judges go, wow, do you remember that guy that, that did one minute? And he was really good. Be different. Don't be afraid to be different from the rest of the crowd. So, in, and the way to do that is to be creative. And like Axel says, in a way, it is lateral thinking. It's coming up with different solutions. And as I said before, with resilience and resourcefulness, it's not a gift, it's a skill. And it can be worked upon. Sure, there are some real geniuses out there that they seem to do it, but they look like a genius because they work probably 10 times harder than you do. And they just don't show it. And they try and play it off as a game of like, well, I just have this gift. Virtually no one has a gift. People who are great tend to be great because they work 10 times harder than you think. So you can work on creativity. It sounds, you know, it's, it's not what we're assumed to believe in modern society where you have an artist who's just a creative genius. It's like, no, 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 they paint thousands of pictures and just show you one. It's the same with science and the same with research. So don't be afraid to go against the flow and to be provocative in what you do. 
And that often, you know, you know, some people will like you and some people will not like you. But the person that will like you might think, hey, they, I mean, you know, one of the classic examples here is going for, for a job interview. Everyone's got the same sort of CV to get to the interview position itself. Mm -hmm. The person that stands out, the person that is more creative, they're more likely to get it. So uh, always, always be audacious. I think that, that that is often the way to get ahead because it makes you stand out because everyone else is being conservative. That's great. Thank you very much. Um, and I'll throw the next question straight back to you as well. So you get an opportunity to answer first this time. Um, okay. <laughs> which is, uh, what mistakes do you see people who are moving into your career path uh, making regularly? Oh, blimey. Okay, so here's the classic. So I'm sure everyone has seen this. And so in current science, and so let's say you're a really good student and you, you get a high grade in your undergraduate and you want to go and do a PhD. And you do a PhD and then say, great, okay, I did really well. Now I want to be a scientist, I'll go and do a postdoc. So you can see there, I made an instant thing saying PhD is not really a scientist. It's, you're still training. You do your science as a postdoc, then that's real hardcore, painful science. But then here's the cruncher. So this is the mistake that people make. And it was very, it's totally different in my day. I had a totally different concept of what being a postdoc was all about. Now people want to accelerate the, the postdoc to, to PI process instantly. So they want to do two years of postdoc and say, oh, I want to be a PI. And it's like, it's like, dude, you really don't because it is the biggest cliche on earth. The, the superstar postdoc who gets the big paper from the big lab goes to be a PI and their career goes 99 times out of 100. And it's, it, it's this, I can see why it wants to be done because everyone wants to be that superstar. And I could name a few superstars, but they've been fired from MIT recently. So they're not good superstars anymore because they're bad people. They do bad things to people. So uh, the truth is, is that taking a bit of time and learning a bit and working in different environments. And so when I was a PhD student, I had envisaged that I would do three postdocs in three years each. And that would be sufficient training for then for me to be a PI after that. Of course, I didn't do that, but <laughs> that's what I wanted to do. And it is very difficult. It's very tempting to try and go too fast in academic science because you look over your shoulder and then there's a superstar who is doing that. But the truth is, you know, I'm sure you've seen all these, all these memes on Facebook and Twitter and stuff saying, you know, you know the, the 10 keys of success to be a billionaire is like, you know, one, be a trust fund baby, two, go to the, the country club and three, have a parent in the, in the industry and stuff that's what those people are like. They have everything handed to them. For the majority of us, it's not that quick. So comparing yourself to others and trying to accelerate your progress is one of the worst things because it, 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 it is just very clear that a lot of people fail in research, not because of their academic smarts, but from their ability to project manage, their ability to have strategy, as Jane said before, thinking more than just one or two years ahead, thinking about a career ahead and not just your career, but the career of other people and not just scientists, but the career of people in administration, people in the organization, people in logistics, people who are technicians, people that don't have the same sort of vision that, that you have. And, and by accelerating young scientists purely in an academic sense this is what you often find in a lot of organizations is they're populated by very smart scientists but very poor managers and you only learn proper skills in those situations by doing it slowly 
because you take one or two tasks at a time. One year you learn about budgets. One year you learn about personnel. One year you learn uh, about uh, organizational vision. So those things are often totally ignored. And there's this focus on just academic brilliance. And I just come in on that because I completely agree with you. I think it's such an important point to make. You know, I think, you know, somebody who spent a lot of time in grant committees looking at people who are trying to become a PI and they just don't understand that they're no longer going to do research most of the time. They think that it is being the boss of the lab and, and being able to drive things forward in the way they want. And it's not. It's making sure that the lab is functional, that the, the lab has enough money to survive. It's writing grants. It's It's a lot of, you know, talking to other people about where the money's coming from, whether it's government, whether it's um, industry, it's not what they necessarily think it is. And I think people don't have enough experience and they don't ask enough questions of their peers mm -hmm. to actually understand what it is day to day to move up. And it's not, you know, people think, oh, it's a promotion. I'm going from being a postdoc to being a PI. It's not, it's an actual change of job. Yep. It's a very different job in science being a postdoc with projects and the freedom to, to operate than being constrained because you have to make sure everybody gets paid and you have to deliver the bucks. And mm -hmm. I think people really don't get that as much as they should before they try and make that choice. I think that's a great point because actually that's one of the things that I was you know thinking about as well. And I've, I've experienced this as well, is that whenever you're offered a promotion, it might not be the best time for it. That we're all trained, everyone is trained take it, take it, take it, more money, more stuff, more money, more stuff. And it's like, it might not be good. So, and everyone I know that hasn't done that has felt guilty and regretted it, but actually it might've been a good thing. Okay. So, but that's a really great point. I, and I hadn't thought about it, you know, as much as that, but. Uh... Do you have any other um, points to make on that, Jane, uh, for yourself? Do you see any particular mistakes that people make? I think in, in the project management sphere, it is around something that Axel said around humility, is that you go from being, you know, in the laboratory to being, as I said already, you know, the 1%, you're the intelligent person, and you have to go learn a whole load of new skills. So yes, you do project management when you have a project and you have to look after certain things, but it's not at the same depth and the same scale as if you're managing a government funding scheme with, you know, 250 million pounds worth of money. You have to understand government policy. You have to understand who are actually the people with power in government, and that's not ministers, normally it's civil servants and people that you've not heard of. Um, who, you know, what what is it that we're trying to fund and why? Is it about, you know, actually growing the economy for UK PLC or is it about just pushing research? And most commonly, it's actually about the economy. So it's actually appreciating that you don't actually understand what you think you understand. You think that doing great science and funding great science is all that research funding is about, and it, and it really isn't. It's much more strategic. There's a lot more politics within it than people um, appreciate. And there's a lot to actually understand and grapple with that you don't know when you walk in the door. So I think it is, again, about humility and accepting that there's a bigger world out there. And sometimes you need to take a step back and learn it. And then you can fly your wings and, and move on up and do, do the stuff you want to do. That's a really great point. Thank you, Jane. Uh, Axel, how about you? Biggest mistakes? Well, so as I said, the people that go into tech transfer usually have a more of a, a broader background and, uh, you know, have got a few more miles on the clock is what I would say. So we tend not to get that many youngsters coming in. But in general, I would say a belief that academic um, excellence is everything 
is some of the things which, you know, it goes through, um, it's, it's really implicit in so many academic careers. It is really important, um, but it isn't necessarily a key definer of success because there's lots of academically excellent people out there, but only some of them will really succeed. Um, and again, to, you know, get back to, you know, how these people are selected, you have to remember that hiring committees do tend to weigh CVs. They want to see all of that stuff on the CV. That's how the people are selected. But in fact, it's ruling out a lot of really key stuff, with, which both Jane and Stuart have really strongly pushed, which is the ability to think creatively, um, to be humble and to care about your staff and to develop something which is more than the sum of the parts. Anybody can have a group with a bunch of postdocs and students, and if they're all good and working hard, they will achieve a certain amount of stuff. The people who are really skilled can make that more than the sum of the parts. That is not something which committees ever get to see. They have no metric for that, and it doesn't exist in academic science. And in my view, it's one of the issues and problems that <laughs> academic science might want to address, but the thing is, it's a hard thing, and it's easier not to address hard things. So I would say yes. Uh, if there's one thing you want to avoid, that is believing that academic excellence is everything. And once you get there, everything else will sort itself out. I think that is a rather superficial view. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so we've only got uh, just under 10 minutes left. So I'll ask a few more questions. Uh, if we can try and keep the answers a bit briefer so we can get through a few things, that would be great. Uh, so the next one is um, about work-life balance. And, you know, what, what does work-life balance look like in your job? Is there much flexibility? Do you have to keep set hours? Um, and I'll put this one first to Jane. I think if you'd asked me before COVID, I would give you a very different answer. <laughs> um, I think it, it was, you know, I, I live in Guildford, which is about an hour's commute to London. I used to get on a train every day. I used to spend three hours a day commuting in and out of London and going to an office, and I don't do that anymore. Um, my, my life is completely different. You know, the flexibility that I have is completely different. My children are no longer in wraparound care. They don't go to breakfast club anymore. They still go to after school club, but I can walk them to school. We have a dog. We never would have had a dog. So the world has changed and it's not necessarily about the job that I do. The world has changed. And there are some jobs where obviously you do have to be, you know, you can't run a gel from your living room unless you take all your kit home, which is very unlikely. <laughs> so, you know, there are clearly areas where that is not, not the case. But for me and my job, it has become much more flexible um, as long as you can achieve what you need to achieve and you have a lot of flexibility to create the meetings around, you know, your, your schedules. Um, then it, it's it's a lot better than it used to be. Uh, and I think, you know, I have I have three children, I work full time and I can manage that and my life is, is much better than it was. And I think, again, to be fair, one of the reasons I left science was because when I was doing my postdoc, I didn't think I could have a career like that. You know, I used to, as a PhD student, I was in the lab every weekend dissecting baby rats, doing very mean things. And he certainly didn't want to do that with a hangover. He didn't have much for life. You know, looking at my peers, you know, there were very few women leaders in, in our, in our um, research centre and they were very stressed. And I just felt that that wasn't a life that I wanted to have. And it was one of the, another one of the reasons that I chose to leave science. And I think, thankfully, that that penny has dropped over the last 10 years. And there's a lot more flexibility for, for women in science and for women coming back from having children, a lot more even part time working than there ever used to be. So I think that, you know, going back to oh, my screen's gone blank. Can you hear me? 
Yep, yep, you're still there, Jane. That's great. So, um, so I think that, you know, I might not have made the same choice if I was in the same position I am now. You know, I, I think given that, that the world of work is changing and has changed, I might have stayed in science longer and given it more of a go. But from my viewpoint, and that may have also been my naivety, you know, at the age I was when they made the choices, um, I, yeah, there were a lot of reasons I did what I did. But I think as, as a there are a lot of women in research funding, and I think that speaks for itself. But I think that again, that is is uh, is because of the time at which we all started doing it. And I would like to think that now it, it necessarily wouldn't be an immediate choice for women who just chose not to stay in science full time in science research. Okay. Um, so Stuart, uh, tell us okay. <laughs> how is work life balance in academia? Well, uh, I'm, I'm 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 glad Jane mentioned about uh, running gels and stuff because so. If you'd have asked me this question about 10 to 15 years ago, I'd have a very different answer. But now, I think my answer is more complete and better and hopefully more positive for people out there. So I think that actually, so it, if I had the choice to go back and do the, the old-fashioned bench science that I used to do, I would say no, absolutely no. Because actually, I don't think it's any good science because it's too slow and it's to what we call low dimensionality. The number of answers you get back is very poor. Virtually now, I mean, I run a lot of very expensive mass spectrometers in my lab and stuff, but the fact is, is the majority of science we do is very different. It's non-hypothesis-driven science. We basically go and say, well, we can collect more data than I could ever analyze and understand in my entire lifetime. So why don't we just learn how to basically extract that data? So compared to what I used to do, which was like slavishly run gels, like 10 or 20 a day, seven days a week, all the way through the night and stuff, the amount of data I got back and the quality of research I got back was very poor. Compared to now, it's not even close, where we can you know, rack up like a plate, put it in the MS, wait two weeks, it's done, boom, boom. We've got data for three, four, five, ten 10 years. It's just crazy. So this coinciding with the lockdown, which we had experienced, and basically we had to turn everything into a virtual process. We built up a whole series of tools in which we could do computational biology, which has actually transformed the way I've seen biology. It actually started before that at NIH, where we started looking at machine learning applications and natural language processing. But then it really crystallized that actually I would never want to go back to doing that classical bench science. So I'm sure bench science will still exist and people will, will still dissect mice and blah, blah, blah. And that'll be done and be fine. But I would say there is an enormous branch and a very productive and dynamic branch of science, which can be done on a laptop in a remote circumstance in the time that suits you best. And that's what we try and do. And I've never really come out of that COVID lockdown process because it, it was difficult to experience the change and to realize that the students were doing something different. and It was hard for them. But now I would never go back. And it is a blessing in a way that, you know, the one positive we can, we can get out of COVID is the change of work process and the understanding. And, and it is proven to us all that we had to be resilient. I remember the first six months, it was a nightmare. It was awful. Uh, but now looking back at it, it has been a benefit. And that's the great thing about being resilient is dealing with these setbacks. So uh, I think it's a bright future for a healthy work-life balance. Okay, that's great. And Axel, how about you? What's your work-life balance like? 
So currently in, in tech transfer, I would say it's very um, friendly. So we work hybrid at the moment. We can, you know, go and meet people, go out on the road and to meet companies and, the, and those sorts of things when, when required. Um, you know, the nature of it is not, doesn't have the same things, you know, cell culture, animal experiments, all that kind of stuff that you have to do in science, which has set times and set places. So in tech transfer, you don't have those kinds of imperatives. You do have other deadlines sometimes associated with, you know, funding deadlines, company deadlines, other sorts of things which have to be met. But you usually have a reasonable um, uh, lead time to know that those things are coming up. Occasionally you get stuff dumped on your last minute, which can be a pain. You know, classic being academic, wants to file a patent, got their paper written. Oh, it's been accepted at this here journal. And, they, and then you're like, mm, this is not the ideal way to file a patent, you know. Um, so it does happen but i would say in general work-life balance is very good covid was crazy for us we were working ridiculous hours because we were repurposing a whole bunch of um, academic stuff for various covid applications in in a across a whole range of things from airflow to um diagnostics to therapies it was absolutely insane um but having said that everybody involved in the process was really engaged because they all thought that they had something to contribute and without every all of the moving parts working together really well none of it would have happened so it was good um i would say that in general work-life balance also um is highly related to how enjoyable you find your work um in that you know you can pour yourself into things and again when i think of my industry um startup experiences they have been pretty intense um but you're you're a willing participant in that you're doing it because you enjoy it um and you think you're building something or achieving something special so under those circumstances you know that's individual choices and you know people will find themselves from time to time during your career in those sorts of things they're fine some people might like that level of drama the whole life again that's a choice quite tiring though that's great thank you so much i'm afraid that is all technically we have time for today um, I'm bringing to the end of the panel discussion. Uh, thank you, Stuart, Jane, and Axel, for an engaging discussion and sharing your unique experiences and perspectives. And finally, thanks to the audience for taking the time to attend and listen in. Uh, so, until next time, good luck in your career and goodbye from all of us at Bite Size Bio. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar or to browse the Listen In series, please see the episode description for links.
finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.